6, starting in verse 10. But we're down at the stage, I think it's verse 17, where we're talking about the helmet of salvation, which literally means to receive something that's wrapped around your mind. That's what the words literally mean in the original language. And it talks about is how your mind thinks and the processes of your mind. And so what I really felt would be helpful for us to do is instead of just spending a couple of sessions on that the way we have on some of the others, is because this is so important, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks, probably more than a couple, we've already spent a couple, of going through some materials that I've taught and will teach again on a course in the School of Ministry called Renewing the Mind. Because what the Bible says a whole lot about how we think. And in, in some Christian circles, that's all they talk about is how they think, and they're not really attuned to what the Spirit of God does. But in other circles where most of many of us come from, we're, we're very focused on the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, and that certainly is what we need to learn to do. But the Bible says a whole lot about what we think and what we think and how it affects us. In fact, we've looked at Romans 12, verse 2, that says we're transformed, changed, by the renewing of our mind. And as we've studied that, we found that the changing is talking about is to take the, the fullness of the salvation that was birthed in you when you came to Christ and bringing that to the outside. We've learned from the scriptures that when you came to Christ, God literally put his nature in you. Now, listen to what I'm about to say. I'm not going to take the time to go to the scriptures, but I can show them to you. Literally, God has put in you the same nature that was in Christ. He's put in you the same ability that's in Christ. The same ability to love. The same ability to pray. Now, sometimes we don't like to hear that because it takes our excuses away. We like the excuse, but you don't understand I'm just human. Well, so was he. He wasn't just human. He was human and he was God. He was both combined. But guess what you are? You're human and you're a child of God. See, we don't... We don't have any excuses because he came as a prototype. See, the churches I was raised in put him up in stained glass windows, and I'm not, I'm not bringing him down to man's level. He came down there on his own. But he came there to lift us up to his level. But the Word of God teaches us. See, what, what I was raised in churches where, where God, Jesus did these miracles because he was the Son of God, and he did them to prove he was the Son of God. That's kind of interesting because if he did him to prove the son of, he was the Son of God, why did he keep telling people not to tell anybody? Was it reverse psychology? But reverse psychology is in essence lying. And since he is the truth, he can't lie. So he wouldn't re- use reverse psychology. He, did exa- he meant exactly what he said. So he wasn't, trying to, he wasn't using his miracles to promote who he was. He was trying to keep from a crowd gathering that he couldn't control. No, what he did is he laid aside all of his power and abilities, Philippians chapter 2, when he came to this earth, and when he began his public ministry, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he performed all those miracles by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He walked in love by the grace of the Holy Spirit. He did everything he did by the grace and the ability of the Holy Spirit. Why? So when they left there, he said, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send another helper to you, a replacement for me. He's going to send in you the same Spirit that's been in me so that he came and tested out and proved to us what a human being filled with the spirit of God could do and what are you and what am I but we are children of God filled with the spirit of God so therefore we can do what he did in fact didn't he tell his disciples that 
He said, the works that I do shall you do, and greater works shall I do because I go to the Father. That's what the Word of God says. Now, religion gets upset at that because it takes away, it gives us responsibility. And we don't like responsibility, do we? Oh, come on, be honest. We don't like responsibility. So it takes that away. So what this verse is saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is what it's literally saying is we take what's, all, what's been put inside of us when we were born again, and we bring it to the outside. How? By renewing how we think. First of all, renewing how you, what you, how you think about God, who He is, and what He's done, and what He's like. Then renewing what you think about yourself, and who you are, and how God sees you, and what God can, wants to do through you. And then renewing what we think about each other. And so we'll talk about all those at some point. But we're learning now, we're taking some time to go through and learn how, not just tell you to renew your mind, but some very practical things that we can learn about how to renew your mind. And most of these things that I'm going to teach you are things that I've had to learn by learning myself how to do this. Some of them I've read from books, but most of them I've had to learn so I can tell you that they worked because I'm not the same person I was 20-some years ago. I'm still not who I want to be and who God has to be. But the change in my life has happened by renewing my mind to this book. We've talked about what it means to renew your mind. It means to change how you think. And I told you last week, you think in patterns of thought. Some of your patterns are logical. Some of your patterns are not so logical. But they're still patterns. Some of them, you may not have any idea how it's a pattern. (laughs) But it is a pattern of thinking. And how you feel, your emotions are based on your thoughts. Emotions follow thoughts. And so everything that operates in you coming out of your spirit and getting into your spirit is controlled and governed by the patterns of thoughts that you have developed or who have been trained in you over the years that you've been conscious and alive on this earth. So what renewing the mind is is nothing more than learning how to change those patterns so that you begin to think the way God thinks. We saw in Isaiah 55 where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher and my thoughts are higher. But we're told we can learn to think his thoughts. And we're learn- we can learn to walk in his ways. In fact, that's what we're told we need to do. But the key to learning how to do it is to learn how to renew your mind. Change- literally just change how you think about situations. Not change how you're thinking your theology. That's fine. But to change the practical patterns of how you react to situations. Because most situations, most things we're talking about are going to come up through a situation. Somebody says something to you, some event happens, you hear a report, you see something, whatever it is, and you have, your mind has been trained in how you react to that. But I'm going to teach you how to retrain it so that you can think the way God thinks in those situations. And so we've been laying down what I call keys to understanding your mind, keys to renewing your mind. Because before we go into the process of doing it, these are some foundation concepts that will help you. In some of cases, these are changing certain ways you've already looked at your mind. Because, for instance, we start out by saying that, uh, that uh, the beginning is to understand that the Word of God is the authority in your life. It's the choice you make. It's not an emotion. It's not, well, someday I'm going to get around to it. That means you're putting off the choice. You can make the choice right now. Now, living out the choice takes work. But it starts with a choice. 
44 and a half years ago, my wife and I made a choice in front of a minister one afternoon. And we, ex- we expressed that choice by hearing some vows, and our response was, I do. 44 and a half years later, we're still learning how to live it out. But it started with an act of our will that now becomes the foundation for further choices that we make. And very often what we do is we wait to make a commitment until we feel it. And what happens with that is if you ever get to the place where you feel it, the next day you get up and you don't feel it, the commitment's gone because it's based on how you felt or how things looked. But commitments are based on choices that you make. And marriage is a choice, an act of my will. And that may mean that every day I have to reinvent, reinvent. I have to re-exercise that choice. But it's got to start with one choice that then you go back to. The same is true when it comes to the things of God. So it's a choice to decide that the Word of God is the authority in your life. We talked last week about what that doesn't mean. Because a lot of times we say yes, but what we mean is it's an influence. An influence is well short of an authority because that means other things can influence you. So influence means it has an effect on me, but it doesn't govern me. That's very much where children are today in terms of parental authority. Their parents have an influence in their life, but not really an authority. That means when the parent speaks, the child takes what they say into consideration. I've never taught this before. They take it into consideration as part of their own decision of what they're going to do. But for too many of us, that's the position that this word has also. We know it says certain things. We know that it says certain things that we should do or shouldn't do. We know it says certain things that we're able to do because it says so, even though we may not look like it or we may not feel like it. And so we take that into consideration in deciding what we do. And if that's what we're doing, then this word is an influence, but it's not the authority. Now here's why that's so important for renewing your mind. Because what we're going to learn to do is to take this word and use it as a tool to renew our minds. And this is why it's so important. Because when you take a scripture and you use that for renewing your mind, that scripture has the power of God to change you, but only to the extent that it has authority in your life. If it's only uh, an influence or the next level down, if it's just, if it's just a, a theory, or it's just a bunch of good ideas, then it will only have that measure of power and effect when it comes to using this to renew your mind. But if this word is the authority in your life, and you, your mind has been thinking one way, and now you've put this word in, and your mind now runs up against this word that says something else, and this word is now the authority, you will do what this word says and not what your mind says. I'll give you an example. 
Suppose you're in a situation that God's put you, called you to do something, and you're just absolutely overwhelmed by it. And I've been there. I've been actually right there. That's about where it was. <laughs> One morning in prayer. And then it was over here, another morning over here. And you get in and you just you start looking at situations around you. You say, my God, this is just overwhelming. And that thought starts running through my mind, and then the emotions start coming, but a scripture comes up to me. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when that scripture is brought to my remembrance by the Holy Spirit, I now have a choice. Is that scripture going to be the authority in my life in that situation? Or is it just going to be another idea that I entertain? Now here's what happens. There's a certain aspect of being overwhelmed that our flesh likes. Called fainting. Roman, uh, Hebrews 12 talks about it. Fainting is where you just kind of collapse. And I, you know, I just can't do this. I just, you don't understand, it's too hard. I can't do this. And you just collapse. And that becomes, that feels good to our flesh because it takes the pressure off of us and it gives us an excuse for not doing what God's already decided we can do. Remember last week I told you the story about our dog Mandy and how took, Mandy took me to obedience school? Well, we had another dog. It was our oldest son's dog. His name is King. And he wanted a macho dog. So whereas Mandy was a little miniature poodle, King was a German shepherd. Well, he was part German shepherd and part collie. When he was a puppy, he looked German shepherd. When he grew up, he acted collie. And he was just, I mean, if Mandy was uncontrollable, he was more uncontrollable. And so I learned my lesson, you know, so we take King to obedience school. And we take him out there, and, you know, the first thing is to learn to sit. And we, you know, it's, it's my son's dog, so I was going to have him do it. So, you know, the, the, the instructor's there, and, you know, King's just kind of standing there with this collar on. And he says, now, Chris, tell King to sit. So Chris says, King, sit. And he just kind of... He had the dumbest look I've ever seen on a dog. <laughs> but it was part of his method. And so the instructor said, now don't let him get away with that. You give him instruction. What you do is you give him instruction. If he doesn't obey it, then you make him do it and you associate having to do it with the command because you don't give him the option that he doesn't do it. So he, you know, he said, King, sit. And he went to force him down. Of course, King resists. And so uh, he said, don't let him do that. So he did it again, and he pulled up on the collar, didn't hurt him, shoved his other end down, and King, this is what he did, he just kind of went. I mean, he collapsed into my son's leg. You'd think he'd been shot. All oh, the life went out of his eyeballs, sort of roll up in his head, his tongue hung out, and it's oh my goodness. He fainted. Not literally, he was fainting. And the instructor says, That's his, he's smarter than you are, because that's his way of avoiding having to do what you're telling him to do. Ooh. Was a nice story, wasn't it? 
Don't let him get away with that. He's trying to train you instead of letting you train him. Now, the problem is when it comes to God, you can't train him. And he knows our every thought. The Bible says he can discern the difference between the thoughts and intents of your heart. That means he knows whether you can do something or not. So when he tells you to do something, he's already determined you can do it. So he doesn't accept it's too hard. He understands it's hard on our flesh. He understands it may require work. work. Excuse me, that hard word's hard to get out. Work. It may actually require some effort. Oh, here's, a, here's another dirty word. It may require discipline. But we can do it. So when this word has authority in my life, and I feel I can't do this anymore. But the word of God says... I can do all things. Now, we're talking about things God's called you to do. You know you're all right to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's the key. So that's just an example of why the first thing is this has to be the authority in your life. Because if it isn't, this process is going to be much more difficult and challenging and you may not ever fully get there. Second thing we saw is is that in order to renew your mind, you've got to catch it. You've got to get control of it. You can't renew something you don't have control over. And right there was a revolutionary thought to some people. Well, first of all, just that they have one. Most people, many people aren't even conscious of their mind. I mean, if you ask them, do you have one? They may chuckle, but inside they believe they do. But they don't ever think about their mind. They don't ever think about their thoughts. So they're not aware of them, so they don't know whether... So if you're not aware of your thoughts, you're not in control of them. If you're not conscious of your thoughts, you're not in control of them. Whatever comes into your mind is is what's going on in your mind. And you're allowing other people and other situations, whether it's CNN, Fox, you know, as the stomach turns, or whatever, your parents... You're allowing others to program your mind, which affects you. So you are allowing other people to determine your destiny, your well-being, your prosperity, your health, your family's condition. You're allowing other people to do that because you're letting them program your mind instead of you. So the second thing is you've got to learn, you've got to to start by accepting, I can control my mind. And I went through the story of training our dog and how it it was a process, but I could learn to do it. And some of the things that you have to do to do that. So I want to get on now. We're still talking about getting control of your mind. So one of the things I talked about is, first of all, it's something you can do. So you've got to start out by saying, see, if God's told me to renew my mind, then I can do it. We just went over that, didn't we? If God says we're to change by renewing our mind, if He tells me to renew my mind, that means I can do it. Now, I might want a bunch of excuses, 
but they don't cut it with him because he knows I can do it. All those excuses means is that may be difficult, but that just requires work. Where does that word again? That requires effort. Okay. Now, the second part, another part of controlling your mind is the goal of this. The goal of what we're talking about is to get your mind to the point that it is captivated by the Word of God. I'll say that again. The goal is to come to the place that your mind is captivated by the Word of God. Let me tell you what the opposite of that is like. It's when opening this book becomes a real effort. It's just hard to get in my Bible and, and, and read it. You ever have those times when it's just... I've got to get through these five verses. because Your mind's not captivated by the Word. Put your favorite TV shows on and it's a Wednesday night and you're a good Christian so you come but you DVR'd or TiVo it or whatever so you can't wait until Pastor John's finished so we can go home and turn it on. I can't wait to turn it on and see what happened to so and so. And you know, it, it's easy to do. We started watching something on PBS and the next thing you know I can't wait for it to come back on again Wait a minute, I'm getting hooked on this. What happens is your mind gets captivated. And you know the sign of it? Is you start thinking about it when you're not doing it. When you've got a favorite TV show or shows and you know, and you're... You know, you can't wait to get up in the morning and call your best friend and say, did you see what happened on American Idol or whatever it was? Your mind's being captivated by it because it's thinking about it when you don't have to. When we first met and I fell in love with her, you, you didn't have to... I didn't like to write letters because we didn't have emails and texting and all that stuff now. We actually had to take... It's called a pen for some of you. And this is called paper. And they work together. They actually work together. I tried it today. It still works. And I would take a pen and some paper and I will actually write in... It's called ink. And I write in ink and I would fold it up and put it... And I would... There's something you put on the outside. It's called a stamp. And I would take it to this thing called a mailbox. And you'd put it in a mailbox... And I don't know, three or four days later, she would come to where she was, and I did that every day. And when I wasn't writing a letter to her, I was saving up money so I could call her. When I wasn't able to do those things, I was thinking about her all the time. Why My mind was captivated with her. And the goal is to get your mind to the place where it's captivated by the Word of God. And what happens then is this, this, this Word becomes the stronghold in your mind instead of the strongholds that the enemy has built into your minds that are destructive. That's our goal. That's the goal for all of this. All right. Now, let's go on and look at some of these. 
And that, that point, your mind starts working for you instead of against you. Your mind's not your enemy. It's just what you put in it. But what we want to learn to do is to take our mind and work for us instead of against us. Um, okay. Now, and the good news is when we get into using the Word of God, it's anointed to do that. All right. Now, the next key. This is the th- actually the third key. What you pay attention to becomes larger in your mind. The more you pay attention to something, the bigger it gets in your mind. One of the mistakes that we make is if we're trying to overcome something by our own efforts. Suppose it's eating, and you just, you know, you're, you've got a sweet tooth, and you've, you know, you, you, you come home, at, well, I better not go after church. You, you, you know, you come home from work, and, you know, you've had a hard day, and, and you know, you've had a difficult day, and you just, you want a little, you want to comfort yourself a little. So what you're going to do is you're going to go to that freezer and get out the ice cream container, and you're going to... I'm losing somebody right now. I can feel... <laughs> you're, you're, what you're going to do is you've decided that you're going to comfort your soul by feeding your flesh. You're going to comfort your soul, not by feeding your soul, by feeding your flesh. And what happens is you do that. So now you do it, and you are going to have one bite. But somehow after the one bite, it's hard to resist the two. Sometimes in the evening, you know, if we're home, my wife will fix some popcorn and say, you know, would you like some? I understand that if I take one, I'm sharing the bowl with her. In fact, it may be a race. If I don't take the one, I don't need it. But once I take the one, I want all of it. All right? So you take the one scoop of ice cream, and now you next thing you know, you've eaten half the half gallon, and it isn't even supper time yet. And now what happens? The guilt starts coming in. And so how do we overcome that? I resolve that I'm never going to eat ice cream again. <laughs> or we resolve something. We're going to now take control, and in the process, in what motivates us, you say, well, I'm going to get, if I don't do this, I'm going to get fat, and you start tearing yourself down. Now, listen what happens. It never works. Why? Because the more you think about what you just did wrong, the bigger it gets in your mind. That's why this principle is so important. The more you think about it, because we're talking about strongholds and fortresses in your mind, the more you think about something, the bigger it's going to get in your mind. So you've got to choose what you want big in your mind, and that's what you need to be thinking about. Part of this is that um, for Hebrews 12.2, we'll look more at it later, says that we are to, Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, having such a great cloud of witnesses that has gone on before us, let, let, us weigh aside, let us lay aside the sins and the, weight, the weights and the sins that so easily beset us. Let us lay aside those little things that slow us down. And then verse 2 tells you how. Looking at everything you're doing wrong and determining never to do it again. It doesn't tell you that. No, verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. 
So in learning to renew our mind, what we've got to understand is some of the devices of the enemy. Is he, he, here's how he, one of the ways he works. And we may talk about this later on. Say, you can't always control the thoughts that come into your mind. And because of that, you're not responsible for the thought that comes into your mind. What you are responsible for is what you do with that thought. Just like you can't, you're not responsible for who comes to your door and rings your doorbell. But you are responsible for who you let in. So your doorbell rings tomorrow night. You go to the door and there's a guy dressed in a brown uniform with this plastic thing and a box under his arm and three letters on his shirt and his house. Okay? And you know what they are. And he says, I have a package for you. And what does he do? He hands it to you. And what do you do? You take the package in, and then he says, sign this. And after you've taken the package in your house, sign for it, which means it's now yours, then you go and look to see who it came from. Right? But it's now yours. Suppose you've done all that and you look on it and it says Atomic, Atomic Energy Commission hazardous materials. And yet that's exactly what we do with thoughts. They come to us. We, hear, we sense the thought. We bring it in having no thought about what the purpose of that thought is. Because every thought in your mind has a purpose to it. You have the right, when they bring a package to your door, to say no. It's still your house. In fact, you have the responsibility for your household to decide what you bring in it. Years ago, I had already gone, out, gone away to school, so this is a story I was told. I wasn't there. But one of my younger brothers was in a science project. And this science project required him to do something with experimental um, uh, frogs. And so they ordered a frog from some laboratory somewhere down south. From the way I got the story is they must have been shipped fourth class because they took forever and arrived in a box with holes in them. And the box was about like that. And so they signed for them, brought them in the house. And apparently what they did is because there was a high attrition rate of these, these frogs, didn't, a mortality rate, instead of shipping one frog, they shipped four or five or six of them. Now, I don't know how long they were in there, but all I know is this, is when my brother decided to open it, those frogs were determined they were never going back in. <laughs> They'd been in there long enough with each other. So here's what happens. Doorbell rings. My brother goes to the door, opens the door, signs for it, brings the package in. The door closes. The UPS guy disappears. He's gone. He's gotten rid of it. And now my brother takes this package, which is right now just a package, and he now unties it and opens it. 
And now these four or five frogs, and they were big ones. They were bullfrogs with the big legs. They have one determined purpose. You're not going to get your hands on them. And so what happened is the moment this box is opened, these frogs are loose and all over the place. And it took hours, maybe days, to track some of them down. Now let me ask you a question. Would it have been easier to control them before they got out of the box or after they got out of the box? All right. Actually, been bad. well, he wanted the frogs, so there was a purpose for the frogs. But before he discerned what, we, before he understood what was in there, he opened it. The same is true with thoughts that come to your mind. It's much easier to control them at the door and determine where they've come from and what the right thing to do is with them than it is to wait until you've unwrapped it, watered it, fed them, and now release them into your soul. And now you've got to go around the process of tracking them down because they're hopping all over the place creating chaos. You got a picture of that? That's what happens in your mind when you don't discern where the thoughts come from. In order to do that, you've got to recognize the ding-dong when they're at the door. That's a thought that's come in. Now, Satan's device is very often that he will give you a thought that's designed to condemn you or some terrible thought And then the next thought that comes along is what kind of Christian are you for having that thought? Remember, he's a deceiver. He's never after what he appears to be after. And his goal is to discourage you so that you will let down your guard. I want to read something. My wife was reading this book she found in my study over. It's an old book, so I don't even want to tell you what it is because I'm sure we don't have it in the bookstore. But it's called The Names of God <laughs> by Lester Summerall. I don't know if it's in print. But anyway, she was reading this and she started reading this to me today. Listen to this. Satan tries to destroy us from within, you see. He can give us physical trouble. He may even give us, and he can give us much opposition in the work that we try to do for the Lord. But the front line of the battle, so far as Satan is concerned, is your mind. He knows that if he can defeat your thoughts, he'll defeat your faith. So he wants to make you a skeptical of God's promises so that he seizes on every setback problem as an accusation to bring to your mind and he begins whispering doubt in your ear. That's just what he did with Abraham, but it's actually what he started doing with Eve in the garden. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There is no temptation that's overtaken you that's not common to man. He has nothing that's new as a temptation. So we can look at his devices, understand his devices, so we can be forearmed. So one of his techniques is to bring some thought in your mind that you don't want, but he brings the thought to your mind, and then the next thought is, what kind of Christian are you having that thought? Because he's trying to lower your confidence to reject that thought. First of all, but if you don't understand it, you'll think just because you had that thought, that was yours. It's no, no, no more yours than if the, 
if the mailman brings to your door, rings your doorbell, and has a package of pornographic magazines. They're not yours. They're somebody else's that he's bringing to you. You have the right and the responsibility to say, no, I don't want those. Even though you've seen what they are, no, I, because you've seen what they are, I don't want those. The same is true with thoughts. So if I, I, I talk to thoughts. If I get a thought that's not a godly thought I don't want, I speak to it. I said, in the name of Jesus, that's not my thought. I don't want that thought. And if, I just, if it really gets them above, I'll just say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. I may start forming a picture of him on the cross in my mind, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. My point is, I, don't, I answer the thought. I don't let it in. And that requires practice. But that's why it's important to learn to identify that you're having thoughts and what they are and where they're coming from. So what you pay attention to becomes bigger in your mind. So that's so important because another one of his devices is he'll try to t- tell you to overcome him by, by thinking about what you're doing wrong. And that's a trick because it's exactly what you're doing because you're going to build faith in your, in your shame or in what, he, what you're doing wrong. And that's not how the Bible tells us to overcome him. He doesn't want you thinking about... In fact, He wants you thinking about anything but Jesus. Another principle, very important for this process. You cannot think more than one thought at a time. Now, you can think them quickly, but not one, more than one thought at a time. So in order, I want to demonstrate this to you. So close your eyes for a moment. And when I say go... I want you to just not. I want you just silently count backwards from a hundred, hundred ninety nine, ninety eight. All right, and then when I when I say stop, I want you to say your name out loud. All right, everybody understand that? All right, all right. Go, start counting. Stop. Some of you weren't sure your name. <laughs> what happened to your counting? Why? Because you can't think two thoughts at the same time. The reason that's important is one way of gaining control of your thoughts is to already arm yourself with a thought you're going to use to stop it. That's what I do with the name of Jesus. So if I get thoughts, I may be in the middle of working on something. It can be praise and worship. And these thoughts come to my mind, I'll answer with the name of Jesus. Because I can't think two thoughts at the same time. So one device for gaining control of your thoughts is by using consciously a thought to stop them. Just the word stop will do it. But how much more powerful Jesus. And then another principle is getting things out of your life that will reinforce the old images. Get things out of your life that remind you, create pictures of the old you that you don't want to be reminded of. It may be people in your life. But we're supposed to love everybody. Oh, the Bible tells you to be discerning about who you hang out with. You will, you will be drawn to the attitudes and values of the people that you associate with. That's why Proverbs talks so much to young men and to parents of young men, and women, of course, about who you associate with, that hang out with. Because you pick up attitudes. So it's hard to be serving God and try to be committed to God and renewing your mind to the things of God if the people you're hanging out with aren't. 
The Bible says to not be unequally yoked. I know that means business, that means marriage, but it has a broader application, I believe. I believe it means friends. Pick people that are more committed to where you want to go than you are. And begin to associate with them. Because what their values and their attitudes will begin to... Because we imitate one another. And you'll begin to reach up to their level. It's just practical stuff. Okay. And the last one of these principles is focus your efforts. Don't try to change every area of your life at the same time. Pick one thing and get victory over it. And then begin to apply it. Okay. Now I want to talk a little bit about the process of renewing your mind. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. There are a lot of books out there on, um, you know, and there, 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 are, there are philosophies out there and even some religions out there that are based on changing you by changing how you think because it's a biblical principle. But the power to do it successfully comes from the Word of God. And although these principles will work outside, but they're so much more powerful when you're, when you're renewing your mind to the truth of God's Word. Example of what I mean by that. When, this is before we were saved. It was back in the early 70s. You know, and it was when we were at, at an age of life when we're beginning to, you know, look at ourselves and realize, well, maybe there were some things we need to, to mature in and maybe there were some insecurities in some areas and things we need to grow in. And I ran across a book that was part of a popular movement back then, which really is nothing more than Eastern religion, but it didn't describe itself that way. And the book was entitled, and some of you will know what it is, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Anybody remember that? And I read through that book, and it was really exciting. And the idea was, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide I'm okay, and I'll agree that you're okay. So that means together we're okay. The problem is I know I'm not. It's kind of like the old children's story, The Emperor's New Clothes where, you know, the story where the emperor didn't have any clothes on, but because he was the emperor, everybody's afraid to embarrass him. We all went around pretending what a nice pair of clo- set of clothes the emperor has. So we all knew it was a lie, but we all were agreement on the same lie together. And, you know, and that works until somebody stands up and says, the, some child stands up and says, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. The problem with I'm okay, you're okay, is there's no child standing up. Somewhere down inside, you're not going to have confidence because you know you're not okay. But see, we kind of pretend together we're okay, then it works okay. So that's a way where you can use mind processes to try to make you feel better about yourself, but you can't ever make yourself feel better about yourself because you're not your own judge. Because somewhere inside, you'll know you talked yourself into it. You following me? So your sense of value cannot come from yourself. And ultimately, it cannot come from another human being. They can reinforce it. So your spouse can reinforce your value, but you can't get your value from them. Your sense of value and importance has to come from someone greater than you, who knows you fully. Because otherwise, you have this idea, I I fooled you. 
See, if you're trying to get your value from your spouse, somewhere down inside is this fear, well, they don't really know me. If they really knew me, then they might not think so well of me. So now there's pressure on me to, put up, to live up to some standard so they'll continue to accept me. And we do that with other people. But when there's a God in your life who knows you perfectly, knows every thought you've ever thought, and He still treasures you and values you, He has the ability to give you value that you can't go get for yourself. So any religion, any philosophy, any social theory, any whatever that tries to get our value from one another and from something or something else ultimately has to fail because value can only come from a greater being than us. And so that's again why the Word of God is so important in doing this. And so we're going to go down through this and this describes the process and then we'll pick up here next time. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, to whom in the presence am lowly among you, being absent, being absent, I am bold toward you. I beg you that when I'm present, I might, may not, not, might not have to be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold with some who think of us as if we walk according to the flesh. Now just a little background here. Paul's being sarcastic. Because they had written a letter accusing him of being bold when he was away from them, with them, and, 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 but not so bold when he was away. And they were, they were accusing him of, being, uh, of not caring about them. They had come, become so spiritually prideful that they didn't, wouldn't let him back in the church he founded. And, and, and they really, because the gifts of the Spirit were flowing so powerfully through them, they decided they were more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. So he, is, he had a very sharp tongue. He's using sarcasm here to get a point across. That's at that point. But now he's going to get into his point. He said, some of you who think we walk according to the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, that's in our body, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now here we're talking about strongholds, excuse me, of the mind. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. So there are strongholds and there are imaginations in high things that exalt exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And Paul said, I've come to make war against those things. So the things that are in our mind, the strongholds that are in our mind, ultimately are interfering with our knowledge of God and of what He's like. Not our knowledge of the theology of God, but our knowledge of Him personally, of what He's like, of His ways. of what. And the proof of it is how much I can trust Him. I don't mean in church, because we all trust in church. I mean at 3 o'clock in the morning. I mean the way I was talking about Sunday, when a crisis comes, and we've run through every other resource we've had, and now it comes down as an act of desperation, we've got to pray. That means in my own heart, I had the least confidence in God, because I've come to Him after nothing else worked. It's knowing Him that way. 
It's knowing him with a confidence that I know what he'll do. Jesus in John chapter 11. See, Jesus knew his father. He didn't just know about him. He didn't just understand the theology, the theocracy and the theology of God. He knew his father. Because standing at the tomb of Lazarus, a man who had been dead four days in that tomb, four days, and his Lazarus' sister is standing there saying, Lord, he stinketh by now. And that wasn't a sisterly criticism of her brother. That was a fact that his body would have already begun to decay. So we know where her faith was. Jesus said, said, I have come to raise him. And she said, well, I know you are the resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection. She said, I know in the last day you're going to raise him. And she said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not, I'm not will be the resurrection. I am the resurrection. So wherever I go, I bring resurrection. I bring life. We studied before how in Romans 4, it says that Abraham believed God, who said, as for me, I've made you a father of many nations. It says, in the sight of him whom we believed, even God who raises the dead, God is the resurrection. The ability, the power to raise something from the dead and bring it to life. That's what he did with you. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you and I were dead in our sins and transgressions. But he made us alive together with Christ. Chapter 1 talks that we would, Paul's prayer is that he would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would understand three things. The third thing that we would understand is that we would know the exceeding greatness of his power that he displayed towards us when he raised, towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. I'm reading a book written by a man who the reports are that he raised 20, God used him to raise 23 people from the dead. Why can't he do it if God did it through Jesus? But this man knows his God. And so Jesus, standing at the tomb of Lazarus, says, Father, the reason I'm talking to you out loud is so they'll know you did this and not me, but I don't need to go ask you because I know that you always do what I say. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, no, we don't have to pray. Jesus said to Peter after he'd cursed a fig tree and he didn't have a fig tree cursing service where they jumped up and down and spit and you know had to get all lathered up. He just walked by it. There wasn't fruit on it. He says, may no man eat fruit of you anymore and just kept on going. And the next day when they come past, he just keeps going by it because it says it's withered from the roots up. It means it's over like that within less than 24 hours. They come back by it, and he's going on by. He wasn't shocked that it did what he said. But Peter said, whoa, 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 master. Wait, whoa, 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 master. The fig tree. Look at it. It's withered from its roots up overnight. And Jesus now sees a teaching opportunity. He says, well, all you've got to do is have faith in God. 
I've been meditating on this verse. Jesus said, For I say unto you, this isn't someone's theory, this isn't someone's doctrine. Jesus said unto us, Whosoever Seems to me he said that somewhere else. I think I remember over in John chapter 3. The same Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that... Who? Whosoever should believeth on him. So it would seem to make sense that whosoever in John chapter 3 ought to include the same whosoever... In Mark chapter 11, it's the same Jesus and it's the same whosoever. Now, we have no problem understanding whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how we're all here. But it's the same Jesus, the same word, the same whosoever. So what is this whosoever can do? Whosoever shall say... Unto this mountain, be thou taken up and cast in the sea. And here's the key. And shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he said shall take place. He shall have whatsoever he saith. That's just as much a word to you from Jesus as whosoever shall believe us shall have everlasting life. And it's the same condition. Because in order to receive the everlasting life, you had to believe what he said. In order for that mountain to be cast in the sea, you have to believe in your heart and not doubt. Same thing. Jesus knew his father so well that he knew what his father would do before he spoke it. The Apostle John understood this. Oh, oh, I wish I had time. The Apostle John understood this because he said, wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, if you ask anything that's in accordance with his will, you know he hears you. And the next verse is so powerful because this tells you something about what John knew about God. And this I know about him. That if he hears you, you have the request you've made known. These are written by man that knew God. Not about him. They knew what he would do. They knew his ways. Remember, his ways are higher than our ways. Better than our ways. Better than you can imagine. Ooh, wish I had the time. Better. And that's why Paul prays that you would open the eyes of their understanding, that they would see, you and I would see in here the hope of his calling, the glory of the inheritance that we have together with all the saints, and the exceeding 
greatness of his power which he displayed when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. No. Which he displayed towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes, that they would have an understanding of what God is like, to understand that this power by which he raised Christ from the dead wasn't just a raising from the dead, it was so he could display that power towards, through, and for us. For we are his church. We are his body in the earth. And his body is not to be weak. His body is not to be intimidated. His body is not to be shy and retiring and pulling back. His body is to be the way his body was when he walked in it on the earth. But his body knew his father. And knew what his father would do. The body that's left here still doesn't yet know him. And as you begin to know what he's like, the strongholds begin to come down because those strongholds have been built there by the enemy so that you would not know what your heavenly father is really like. Instead, you'd live with an image that's been drawn or painted on that stronghold. Because you will relate to God based on how you see Him in here, not what you think of Him up here. And renewing the mind involves pulling down those old strongholds and building new ones. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for the power of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we ask you to take the things that we've heard tonight and by your precious Holy Spirit in us to burn them down in our hearts. Awaken us in our hearts, Father, that we may become aware that you are a great and a mighty God and the things that you want to do in our lives and the strongholds that you want to bring down for you want to deliver and to set free and to redeem for you are redeeming, delivering God. And so, Father, we've come to you tonight. It's our job to renew our minds, but you've given us your word and the anointing upon your word by which we may do that. And we thank you, Father, as we begin that process together, that we declare ahead of time that we are victorious, that we will come to the place where we know you as Jesus knew you, as Peter and John and James knew you, Father, as others have known you. We will know you that way, and we will walk in their steps and in your steps in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.